Thanks so much. Thank you. <clears throat> Thanks for joining us, uh, folks. I'm going to be painting a landscape more than showing you websites. I will show you a few websites that you actually know very well, but I'll try to give you new insights into those. But what I really want to do is show you how the uh, digital landscape is shifting, how dramatically it's shifting, and how dramatically it's going to keep shifting, and the reasons uh, for that. And then the imperative that that places on anyone in media, and then I'll give you a picture briefly of the future as well, and why it's, it's necessary to understand and embrace the digital imperative today for anyone in media, in fact anyone in business, but media in particular is going to be steamrolled if they're not driving the steamroller themselves. And I'm going to start off showing a few maps of the world, and the first two you may be familiar with. Have any of you attended one of my presentations in the last few years? Anyone here? If you have, you will have seen the first two maps, but you may well have seen them in other presentations and other websites as well. But the third map will be completely new to you, and it's going to be an astonishing map, I hope. And the first one is the Facebook map of the world from 2010. This shows the intensity of human connectivity across the globe, based on the fact that Facebook is the best proxy for human connectivity. Today, 1.6 billion users, that's almost a third of the world's population, are on Facebook. So the connections between those people give you a really clear picture of human connectivity across the globe, except for one country, which is China, where Facebook is banned. Um, so China looks dark, but that's simply because they're not part of the Facebook map of the world. But have a look at South Africa, look at Africa in particular, look at Brazil, and look at India. So based on this map, uh, North America and Western Europe are well lit up, Southeast Asia well lit, lit up, intensely connected. And then India looks like it's well lit up, but look what happens in just three years. So India suddenly brightly lit, Brazil brightly lit, and coastal Africa, and in particular South Africa, brightly lit. The only part of South Africa that by 2013 wasn't well connected was the desert and semi-desert areas, the Kalahari and the Karoo. Um, and the rest of Africa, you can still see uh, the Sahara Desert, obviously uh, not connected, and then areas where there's um, civil strife and turmoil, also not con connected, but you can see coastal Africa suddenly coming online, and Brazil coming online in a big way. Now, in the Southern Hemisphere, what drove that connectivity, that dramatic change from there to there, was the arrival of new undersea cables. And in South Africa in particular, the key date was uh, 23rd of July 2009, when the CECOM cable was switched on. And a lot of people think that it's because CECOM brought uh, faster speeds or more bandwidth to South Africa. It wasn't that. It was that it brought competition to not just South Africa, but all of Sub-Saharan Africa. Up to that point, there was only one undersea cable giving access to the global internet, and that was controlled by one company called Telcom that you may have had uh, dealings with as a customer. But w with CECOM came competition and then a flood of additional cables. And we liken that moment in 2009 to an earthquake at sea, which resulted in a tsunami 
of massive change, not just in South Africa, but across the entire Southern Hemisphere. The shift in India was because of the dramatic fall in the cost of uh, cellular access, uh, voice communication, SMS, as well as data. So data became affordable to the masses, in effect. Whereas in South Africa, data is still out of reach for many people. And I'll talk a little more about that shortly as well. So we were waiting with bated breath for the 2016 version of this map. Now it hasn't been publicly, rele publicly released, but in February, at the Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, Mark Zuckerberg gave a keynote address at the launch of the Samsung S7 phone. And in his presentation, he briefly showed the new Facebook map of the world. Someone from Reuters managed to uh, photograph it before he moved on. So uh, we were able to extract the new map from a Reuters photo um, during Zuckerberg's talk. Hopefully soon it will be available online. But this is what it looks like. Now that's the reaction that I had, that's the reaction everyone has. Wow. This shows the world going uh, digital. And across Africa, the only areas in Africa that have not gone digital are desert areas and those where there's still intense um, a civil war or where uh, there's very sparse population. Even in South Africa, in the Karoo region, you can see intense uh, connectivity. In South America, it's only parts of the Amazon basin where you don't have intense connectivity. And then, of course, uh, China and some of the more sparsely populated regions of um, Russia. But the rest of the world is fully connected. That's what 1.6 billion people online looks like. So in South Africa, what this partly translates into is a rapid rise in the use of smartphones. End of last year, 23.6 million smartphones in use in South Africa. That's huge. That's already more than half the adult population. Projections for the end of this year is close to 20, sorry, <coughs> close to 29 million uh, users. And that's well over half of the entire uh, population. There's a gap, though, between smartphone users and internet users. The big driver of smartphone sales and of data use in particular is WhatsApp and to a slightly lesser extent, Facebook. So people want to use WhatsApp because of the cheap communications and that brings them sometimes, if they don't have smartphones, brings them into the smartphone environment, but also brings them into the data environment. Given that and the fact that only three quarters of smartphone users actually have internet access, it tells you that there's something structurally wrong with our data environment. And that's the reason um, we don't see as rapid adoption, for example, as India does, where a, a vast proportion of the population lives close to the poverty line or below uh, the, the poverty line, and yet data is accessible. In South Africa, if you are wealthy or you're well off, you will buy a data bundle, which will result in the cost of data being around one to five cents per meg of data, per megabyte of data. If you are um, not well off or you're living close to the poverty line and every rand you spend is counted and accounted for, you're not going to buy data bundles up front. 
because that's a luxury. You're going to buy an airtime bundle, and if you do use data, it'll come off your airtime. But guess what the cost of that data is? If it's coming off your airtime and you're using it ad hoc, um, as and when you need it. Minimum cost is one rand a meg. And depending on the service provider, it can be as much as two rand per meg. So think about that. The wealthy are paying one cent to two cents a meg, maybe five cents. The poor are paying one rand to two rand a meg. So that has to change. And it's part of our ongoing um, attempt to draw uh, attention to the need to bring down that ceiling cost of data. And that's an area where the regulator needs to step in actively. And it's an area where policymakers can play a role in making data accessible to the population. But the result of that is that where you have 23.5 million smartphone users, at the end of last year, you only had 18.5 million internet users. And this is the internet growth curve from the year dot in the internet, 1994. Um, we, in fact, in, in one variation or another, we began researching the internet um, in 1994. So we've been tracking those numbers from the very start. And we went through a long period uh, from around 2000 to 2007, where uh, growth was completely flat because there was an attempt to control access to the internet. When the Seacom cable was announced, suddenly Telcom lowered their costs dramatically, their wholesale cost, and they, they stopped trying to fight to control internet access. There was a, a massive case in 2006 and 2007 where Telcom tried to persuade the regulator that based on Telecom's law, they were the only organization with the right to provide internet access in South Africa. And that case had been pending for a few years. And the result of it was that no one wanted to start up an ISP. No one wanted to uh, go into the business of internet provision in case Telcom closed down their business. So when ICASA, or its predecessor, in 2007 declared that Telcom didn't have the right to control internet access, that was the first thing that opened the floodgates for new ISPs to emerge. And then with Seacom's announcement that they would be coming online in 2009, Telcom dropped their costs, and you started seeing a dramatic rise in the number of users, but it was that 2009 switch on that resulted in the explosion. And you can see from 2010 onwards, as a result, a rapid rise in the number of Internet users in South Africa. So end of this year, conservatively, we estimate 20 million, but if we take that three-quarters equation, three-quarters of smartphone users uh, being on the Internet, then uh, you could be talking around 22, 23 million internet users. So this is a very conservative projection. And the further projection is based on the assumption that the mobile networks won't bring down the ad hoc cost of data. If they do, we'll see that curve start rising steeply again. Be beneath this uh, set of numbers, though, lurks a more important set of numbers that you can extrapolate from this graph. And that's what we call the digital participation curve. And what it means is that the number of experienced people on the Internet is um, equivalent to people who are economically active on the Internet. Either they're transacting online or they're creating content online or they're participating in the online environment as opposed to just consuming and just uh, using WhatsApp or um, Facebook. And 
that digital participation curve is based on people having been online for five years or more. That's what we've uh, worked out is the time it takes for people to become comfortable and confident in the environment. So it's simply taking this curve and pushing it forward five years, and that's what it looks like. So you can see in 2015, for example, 18.5 million internet users, 6.8 million who had been online for five years or more. And what that also raises is the fact that digital participation curve starts climbing now. In fact, last year it began to climb steeply. So if you extrapolate the 2020 projection and a further five years, then you can actually see the digital participation curve for the next 10 years, and this is what it looks like. So we sit in 20, just have to work out which is the button that, uh, there we go. We sit in 20, end of 2015 with 6.8 million experienced users, climbing fairly steeply this year to 8.5, and then climbing very steeply for the rest of the decade, up to 2020, you're seeing a very steep climb in the number of experienced users online, and then it keeps climbing for the next five years. So this is the curve that in fact places a digital imperative on anyone in media, because what you have to understand from this is that people may have been consuming passively the content that you uh, put online, but in the next five years, they're going to start consuming far more actively, which means they're going to make demands on you for the kind of content they want, and they're going to interact more aggressively with that content as well. So commentary, for example, on what you're putting online is, um, is going to make the kind of uh, comment wars of the past look like a picnic. W one of the challenges that that brings up, of course, is the need to moderate content. Quite a few media houses over the past few years took the view that they didn't have to moderate the, co the comment sections of their websites. That's like a newspaper saying they don't have to edit letters to the editor. They can just publish everything that comes in as a letter to the editor. And what it resulted in was quite a toxic environment in comment sections. And News24 eventually gave up and shut down the comment section. We'd actually said for years that they should be moder moderating that section. And they refused. Why? A simple reason, traffic, because the amount of comment and the controversy around the comment resulted in massive traffic. You still see it at My Broadband, which is one of the most trafficked sites in South Africa, one of the most, I think it's the second most uh, visited uh, tech site in South Africa. But the primary reason for that is because of the comment section. And that comment section is also quite uh, toxic. I used to way in, way back, if people commented on our research, for example, and I realized it's a losing battle because there are many people who simply want to start a flame war. And if that's what you're facilitating, you're not really promoting um, discussion. It's not freedom of expression. It's freedom of abuse that you're really promoting in that kind of environment. And this curve is also potentially a rising curve of online abuse if you allow it to happen. So you've got to be careful what you allow in that environment. But by the same token, you also have to be aware that people are going to expect interaction. It doesn't uh, mean that you have to allow abuse, but it does mean that you have to be open uh, to discussion in uh, this environment. And as I say, this takes you through to the end of the decade where it's steep growth in the number of really active users, demanding users, and users who expect 
um, you to meet their needs in terms of the kind of content you provide. But then it keeps rising. And as I say, if the cost of data is brought down, the ceiling cost of data for ad hoc users, then that curve uh, will resume an upward climb. And you're going to see through to the middle of the next decade a very steep rise, probably to as high as uh, 30 million people uh, who are active, confident, and experienced online users in this country. That's quite scary. It's as scary as, as that Facebook map of 2016 where the world is lit up. When you take that map and you take uh, this graph in combination, it means that your um, audience is digital. And if you're not digital, and by digital I don't just mean online, but digital savvy, if you're not digital savvy, you're going to be in trouble. So what we uh, conclude from that in terms of where people need to go is that you need to have capacity to be able to scale up and down in terms of the number of uh, listeners or viewers or the size of your audience. You need to be flexible in how you serve them and you need to be creative as well in how you serve them. And this we refer to as the variable future. The variable future is one where everyone is going to be on a different flight path at a different level of experience. They will all be experienced, but they'll have different expectations. They'll have different tools that they use to access um, your content. Some people will be using 4K uh, TV sets, OLED 4K high definition or ultra high definition TV sets. Some will simply have a basic smartphone. Every individual and every segment that you're targeting is going to experience in the future differently and you have to be able to serve each of them in the way that they experience that future. So for example, if you take it in terms of where the mainstream is at year by year, the South African mass market is not yet in 2016 in terms of the technology that's available or the way that you might be serving them. Where the mass market is arriving right now is this year, 2007, when the first true touchscreen smartphone arrived on the market. You might recognize that gentleman. The phone is the original iPhone launched in 2007, which began the modern smartphone revolution. But only now are you seeing the mass market truly embracing the smartphone. Entry-level phones costing as a little as 500 rand. That phone, anyone know what it cost when it launched? Anyone nearby one when it launched? $500 is what that phone costs. The equivalent phone in South Africa today, although it's not an iPhone, it's an Android device, but the equivalent phone with the same capacity and the same range of apps uh, right now costs 500 rand. So it's a tiny fraction of what the 2007 phone cost. And that's what's made it possible for the mass market to arrive in 2007. How fast are they going to move up that curve? That depends on a lot of factors and in particular the cost of data. That was the first guy to walk out of the Apple store in New York with the first iPhone back in 2007. And you can see the rapturous reception he got when he walked out of the store and his own euphoria at that. So you don't have quite that same euphoria when people walk out of uh, Edgar's or Jet or um, Ackerman's with their new 500 Rand uh, smartphone. And part of the reason you don't have that euphoria is because they're still terrified of what it's going to cost them when they start using it. 
and that's the, one of the main holdbacks to the digital revolution. But that's going to change in the next few years. And as I said, that rising curve of experienced internet users is the flip side to the uh, cost of data holding back the market. Early adopters are already in 2017. Early adopters are already moving to the world of uh, virtual reality. Uh, we are forecasting that virtual reality will go mainstream in South Africa next year, which doesn't mean that everyone will be using virtual reality, but that you'll be able to buy cheap virtual reality headsets in almost any electronic store. Right now it's still high-end, it's still specialized, and as I say, early adopters are using VR. But by next year this time, it's going to be commonplace. And I'll give you one very quick example. If you go into certain stores selling baby uh, products, um, anyone here have babies? Anyone buy Huggies? Any Huggies customers here? Okay, if you're not a Huggies customer, you might not be aware of this, but if you go into a store now and you buy, um, and you go to the Huggies stand, you might find yourself confronted with a virtual reality um, demo and display. And Huggies are running a VR um, campaign to promote their products in stores in South Africa right now. And if Huggies are using VR as a promotional vehicle, that tells you it's going mainstream fast. Huggies today, everyone next year. So on the shelves, in the stores, you won't be able to move without bumping into VR next year. But it's still an early adopter environment. But that's the two extremes. So on the one extreme, you have the entry-level smartphone user, and at the other extreme, you have the virtual reality early adopter. And that's what we mean by the variable future. So even if your radio station or um, news medium is geared towards a specific demographic segment, within that demographic you'll also find that variable future applies. Some have found ways to embrace the data revolution, some are still terrified of switching on the internet access on their phone. This is the moment when Mark Zuckerberg walked onto stage to give that keynote I spoke about earlier. Uh, they pulled a neat trick on the audience. They had everyone put on virtual reality headsets, the Samsung Gear VR, to experience the uh, VR capability of the new Samsung S7 phones. And while they had their headsets on, Zuckerberg walked onto stage. When they took off their headsets, like magic, there was the wealthiest young guy in the world standing on stage. And he gave a talk in which he spoke about VR as being the next um, mainstream platform for social media delivery. So they are already living in that world. Facebook already in 2017, although still catering for people who are uh, arriving in 2007. If you want to know where this technology is going next, I believe augmented reality, where they overlay information on the real world, is going to be uh, the next big thing. And that's, for example, our Google Glass, which is a failed project because you looked very creepy wearing Google Glass. People could see you were recording them because there was a flashing red light in the corner of your glasses, and the very unstylish glasses as well. So it failed. But the concept of Google Glass was that it would overlay information on your glasses. And before long, you'll find various tools that will make that a standard kind of tool that you can put onto any glasses, as opposed to having to spend um, $1,500 on a pair of glasses, as you did with uh, uh, Google Glass. But look where Google is going next with that technology. This doesn't exist. It's a patent that Google filed in 2012 for active contact lenses. And what that means is that the same idea as um, delivering information onto the surface of your glasses with augmented reality would be brought to contact lenses. They'd be active 
um, areas of the contact lens that could receive information. So it could be your smartphone in your pocket transmitting information onto your contact lenses. And one of the applications of that, for example, is you're walking down the street and you see someone and you whisper voice instructions uh, to your device, might be stuck in your ear even, and uh, you'll say, um, uh, you'll, you'll look at somebody, you'll blink, which is an instruction to your contact lenses uh, to focus on that person, and you'll say identify, and it'll pull, it'll connect to uh, all the social networks, and it will run a facial recognition uh, exercise against all the social networks. And that technology has just been launched in the last few months in Russia, where uh, you can take, take a photo of someone in public and immediately run it against a database of all users of the main Russian social network called VContacta, which, by the way, is owned by Naspers, so it could come to South Africa uh, next week. So um, 50,000 people are already using it to, to match strangers against the VContacta uh, database. Combine that with this technology and voice, uh, in, voice um, control, and you can walk down the street and say, who's that? And it'll immediately tell you who it is, what, who their friends are, where they hang out, what their interests are, and you can become real creepy as you stalk them. That's the big concern <laughs> about this uh, technology. But that's the potential of the technology we're talking about. When it comes uh, to the mainstream in terms of contact lenses, probably not in the next decade. But this is where the thinking is already uh, going. So, having given you a taste of that future, I want to know, are you still, in 1997, a decade behind where your audience is already arriving? Your audience is arriving in the smartphone world. Your audience is either in the digital world or they are nervously arriving or eyeing out the digital world. And the reality is that many radio stations are still stuck in 1997. They have a website. But the website isn't interactive, it's not responsive, and it doesn't take into account the needs of the user. So although the um, ad for this presentation said I was going to show you some of the best and worst, I decided not to show local sites. I don't think it's fair, but also I'd have to assess something like uh, 70 local websites. But what I can tell you is that many of them are still stuck in 1997. And with that digital participation curve I was talking about, you can't afford to be stuck in 1997 as um, your audience moves up to the year 2020. So I'm going to talk about the world's most popular websites, the best-known ones, so you know these well, or you know of them um, quite um, well. But I'll, I'll try to give you a couple of fresh insights into these. So this is the single most popular website in the world, and it's probably got the least design elements of any website in the world. And that's the first clue to uh, what makes for a great website. But what's really significant about this website is what lurks behind it. And you can't read it from uh, where you are, but this is the range of Google subsites and services that you find um, two clicks behind that main website. So Going back here, if you click on that square there, it brings up a sub-menu of uh, more Google options, and at the bottom of that is a menu option which says more, and when you click on that more, then 
this is what comes up. And lurking here is an astonishing array of services, including YouTube, which is the third most popular website in the world. Number two, by the way, is Facebook. And that's purely based on the network effect. The more people on Facebook, the more people come on board, and um, the more people on board, the more what the, uh, people want to see what other people are doing. So people are stalking each other or uh, chatting with each other or following each other on Facebook. That's what drives it. But for Google, it's about people actually using their services in one way or another. And within those services are numerous business models. So uh, YouTube, for example, has got um, a massive advertising business or advertising engine behind it. But take Google Drive lurking over there. You don't have to be able to re uh, read it. But Google Drive is uh, one of the uh, great growing uh, business, um, businesses and revenue streams for Google. Some aspects of Google are about service, some are about media, some are about content. Uh, YouTube, for example, is becoming the world's most popular TV um, channel. YouTube and Netflix, in fact, are, dis, uh, are, are completely disrupting the world of uh, video and uh, TV content. And that's just a small part of what Google does. It's a vast array of businesses, but it lurks behind that incredibly simple interface. So the three key lessons that Google gives any website is that simplicity rules. The easier it is for people to navigate the site and to find what they need on the site, the more likely the site is to be successful. But that's got to go hand in hand with utility. There is so much you can use and do in that uh, Google menu that you can get lost in it and you can find yourself stuck only in Google and everything you do is within the Google universe. Same to some extent applies in Facebook. For some people, the internet is Facebook and Facebook is the internet and they don't go anywhere else. They can even do their email within Facebook, but less so than in Google because a lot of the things you want to do in Facebook, um, you've got to go through quite a process and it can get quite clunky. Whereas in the Google universe, everything is simple. Everything is focused on getting done what you want to do. So that's the lesson. Uh, the key lesson for a media site is enable people to do what they want to do. And what they want to do is consume your content. So make it easy to consume your content and make the content readily accessible and easy to activate as well. So for example, if you are streaming radio from your website, don't make people go look for that stream. If podcasts are an important part of your website, don't force people to go searching for the podcasts or having to download new apps in order to listen to the podcast and so on. Everything can be easily integrated and readily accessible and especially simply accessible. And then finally focus, which sounds like um, a contradiction in terms of what Google are showing on that previous slide. When you look at, at that, it doesn't look at all like focus. But the reason they presented it in this way is they want you to be able to focus on what interests you. So you can quickly find what you want here, and when you click on that link, then the focus is razor sharp. So the overall range of options might be diverse, but the focus within each of those options is very tight, very, na very narrow, and focused on, in particular, the utility of what is required of that site. This is the fourth most popular site in the world, Baidu 
in uh, China. And exactly the same principle applies. In fact, it looks like a Google uh, ripoff. And a lot of people have accused them of simply copying uh, Google's design. But if you're going to go, com go for complete simplicity, there isn't much else you can do but follow that uh, Google design. They could put the search window at the top and the menu at the bottom, but it makes sense what they're doing. But they've added a few other elements as well, and that is QR codes um, at the bottom. That one there, by the way, is where you can donate a meal that costs one yuan in China. So uh, just um, focus on the QR code with your smartphone, and you instantly donate a, a meal to somebody. So there's a strong uh, social consciousness behind this uh, website as well. Um, aside from that, it does follow much of the same functionality as Google, although not with the same range of services lurking behind it, and not with the same power of dominating the world's advertising. Between Google and Facebook, they probably now have half the world's advertising, but you could find Baidu competing for that as well, especially if they were to launch um, sites in Western languages. And that takes us to the fifth most popular site in the world, which might come as a surprise to some people. Yahoo is the fifth most visited website in the world. It doesn't mean it's the fifth most successful website in the world. In fact, Yahoo is in deep trouble, and there's constant uh, rumors and speculation about it being acquired, and um, its owner, SoftBank in Japan, wanting to divest itself of this real uh, millstone around its neck. The fact is that it generates massive uh, traffic. And the reason it generates so much traffic is because there is so much content that is aggregated from other websites. So it's not their own content. Uh, this one here is from Shutdown Corner, for example, the sports story um, over there. This story is from Washington Post. This one is from New York Post. And you can be sure they're not sharing uh, significantly in the revenues of the Washington Post or uh, New York Post. And among other reasons why they also generate so much traffic is because of all the options, Google type options, or it looks at first sight like it's Google type options, mail, so Gmail, you have Yahoo Mail. Anyone here use Yahoo Mail? One person, two, three, four, five people. Gmail. Practically everyone uses Gmail, and that tells you why Yahoo is in such trouble. They might be close to the kind of traffic that uh, Google gets, but in terms of the uptake of their services, they're way behind news, sports, finance, celebrity, shopping. You can shop on Yahoo. Who shops on Yahoo? Anyone? No? Uh, movies. Movies are available in Yahoo. They compete with Netflix. Did you know Yahoo is Netflix's probably smallest competitor? Uh, Politics, beauty, style, and more. That more button, you can equate to the Google more button. But all it is, it gives you more mess. Whereas Google gives you more utility. And that's the key difference between the two. It's a very noisy, messy site. You have got some focus, but you've got quite a few focus areas as well. So that's a focal point. That's a focal point. The ad is a focal point. Trending now is a focal point. That menu is a focal point. You don't actually know where to focus. So in terms of what they should be doing, oh, weather as well, just by the way, if you're in Virginia right now, that's uh, the weather. Uh, it's going to be raining yeah. over the weekend. 
exactly the same lessons that Google gives us positively, Yahoo gives us negatively. What we learn not to do and what we should be doing um, in terms of what's failed for Yahoo and why they are in such trouble is they don't have simplicity, utility, or focus. Now, you can find the utility if you go looking for it, but you've really got to uh, look for it hard. And then red light spells danger, what not to do. And this is what Yahoo is trying to do. Yahoo is trying to be all things to all people. It's cluttered. There's just so much on the website. There's a lack of a focus um, area or a focal point. And what Yahoo also doesn't do is they're not exploring what's possible in their environment. They're not trying to move the needle, as they say. They're not trying to go for the next phase of where their audience is going, where the media is going. They look like a site from 2007, if not 1997. Actually, I remember Yahoo from 1997. It was a lot simpler and uh, somehow more compelling. Although it was uglier, it was easier to get to stuff, and you could see how they differentiated. So they've actually fallen behind the times. And Yahoo today may have a lot of value lurking within it, but it's very similar to many South African uh, media sites where you don't know where to find that uh, value. And also, given the resources that they have, the kind of backers that they have, the partners they have, there is so much more they could be doing. They really could be one of the cutting-edge sites of the world. Um, people are expecting them to change the way they uh, operate, the way um, they function, what they do. But they're not. They're terrified of change, and they're not exploring what's uh, possible. And that is... Um, the key message behind a piece of advice I would give to the leading media sites in South Africa, those who have resources, is start exploring the future because your audience is going to expect you to explore that future in terms of what's possible. The question is, are you ready for the next five years? Are you ready for 2021? And I'm going to give you a very small taste of the kind of future technologies that are coming that is going to change uh, the future of media. And I'm going to uh, focus just on one specific area. I do a presentation where I show which technologies are coming mainstream over each of the next 10 years, but many of them are not directly relevant to media. This one is, and that is display. Right now, display is focused on a screen and a device. So people are consuming media on a smartphone through an app or a mobile site, or they're consuming it on a laptop or a tablet. On a tablet, it's usually through an app, or again, a mobile site. On a laptop, it's usually through a website, and in some cases, an application, or a, a streaming me media player, or whatever the case might be. The Xperia projector that Sony unveiled at Mobile World Congress, also in February uh, this year, shows a new, a new future. And I got to play with this device in Tokyo a couple of months ago, and it is everything they say it is. You display um, your interface on a wall or on a table. This particular device, the projector, is a small box with uh, two settings, one up and one down. The up setting displays it on a wall, so you could even use it as a kind of TV display. The down setting displays it on a surface or on a table, so you can use it as a keyboard. It's interactive. It detects your finger movements, which is why you can use it as a keyboard as well. Um, and you can plug a smartphone or a laptop or whatever the case might be into this 
and um, therefore display your smartphone uh, interface onto that surface and work on that surface. More recently, about three weeks ago, Lenovo um, in San Francisco unveiled two new um, sets of devices that point to the same future. One is the new Motorola phones called the Moto Z, Moto Z and the Moto Z Force. And the other was a set of modular um, add-ons to the Moto Z phones. They call them mods, Moto Mods. And they demonstrated three Moto Mods. One is a, um, a backup battery that you simply clip on the back and it doubles your battery life or trebles your battery life. One is a set of speakers, high-end speakers from JBL, that turns your smartphone into a boombox, literally. It gives you that quality of sound. But the third one, the most exciting one, is something called InstaShare, which is a projector that you clip onto the back of your phone. Now, bear in mind, the Xperia projector is something that you'd have to carry around in a case, and you'd have to set it up on a table. The InstaShare Moto Mod, you simply clip onto the back of a phone, which means you can slip it into your pocket, and it becomes a projector projecting your phone interface also on any surface, on a wall, and in fact on a wall it gives you quality display up to 70 inches. Some of us have perhaps as big as 55 inch TVs in our homes and those are massive and they really make an impact. This little phone gives you a 70 inch display. So the Netflix app that people have on their smartphones and that they usually think, I would never actually use it, but it looks cool on my smartphone, suddenly becomes real. You can use Netflix on your smartphone displayed on a 70-inch screen through this little modification. And the flip side of it is when you project it onto a surface, then your interface becomes available on that surface. So my projection of where that technology is going to go is that the device itself becomes irrelevant. The projection becomes important. Computing power and capacity is increasing to such an extent that what you can fit into a smartphone today, you'd be able to fit into something the size of a ring by 2021, 2022. And you project the information from that ring onto a surface and you have the equivalent of what today requires this big projector. So by the early years of the next decade, people aren't going to have to carry devices in their pockets. They simply have to carry something that can project a display and that display becomes everything. And that display can be any size, small, large. It can display video, or it can simply play music or radio, uh, for that matter. So people will be able to carry media around with them um, in a way that is so portable, it could be any size media in terms of the quality of the image or the quality of uh, the audio. And what does that mean for um, media players? or, or uh, media practitioners. That's what you've got to think about. So this is my assumption. Okay, we're almost done. This, this is my uh, assessment of that technology. This is on April the 17th where I wrote about how Sony is going to move to projected technology rather than focusing on handsets. And it was a bit speculative, but it was validated just 11 days later in the Google CEO's founder's letter, where he said that devices will become a thing of the past. So it's not just my uh, fun and speculation. It's a serious viewpoint in the industry now that, um, device, that, that devices will disappear and everything will be about display 
or about experience of the content. So that brings me to the final message about future, the future-ready site or service. It has to be variable. It has to take into account what I referred to earlier as everyone having a variable future. It has to be modular. You need to be able to use elements of your site or service in the way that works best in different environments. And you can't do that if you're constantly trying to redesign. You've got to be able to plug and play what works uh, and where it works. And you've got to be flexible. If you're not flexible, you can't meet the needs of this audience of the future. And that future has begun already. Thank you very much. <laughs>